do appreciate uh, the, everyone's presence this morning. Glad you're here, each individual. I know we've got some who are uh, visiting with us today, passing through on their way down to Florida. We get that, if not every week, pretty, pretty often uh, here at Oak Mountain. And uh, I'm glad to meet people from other places, get to know them a little bit, find out a little bit about the church where they are. And so I just think that's uh, one of the advantages our, be, our building being located where it is, that, that's great. I know we got some of our own people there. They're out of town, and so we, we miss them. And some are not with us due to illness or uh, for some other reason, legitimately uh, not with us. But we're glad for each one, each one today. We're glad that you're here. We're talking about learning to think biblically and learning to think scripturally. Uh, having the, the scriptures shape our thinking about our world and our life and the world around us and how to evaluate things that take place and what kind of decisions we want to make as, as individuals. And so we're going to continue talking about that today. I like, came across this picture. I kind of like this picture. Here you see this guy. He's got his, he's got his Bible out. And uh, he's got his, uh, his uh, tablet there. And he's got notes on that. He's looking at That's what we need to be doing. We need our scriptures out, our Bibles out, and making a careful study of the scriptures and what they say and how can I apply that to my life and coming to a, an accurate understanding of these things so that we can shape our lives and shape our thinking by what the scriptures have to say. We're going to talk about Jesus and in his role in, in these things and uh, wonder why it is that we call people and invite people and actually just simply following the call of Jesus himself to, to come after me, to come after Jesus and follow him and center your life around Christ. Why, why would anybody do that? Why would an otherwise rational 21st century man or woman want to follow somebody that lived so long ago in another place, another time, very much unlike the world we live in today. In the 1960s, I was a young boy in the 1960s, uh, 1960s, really tumultuous time in American history. Uh, everything is being deconstructed in the 1960s. Everybody's questioning every established institution. In fact, being a member of the establishment was really a, a bad kind of thing during the 1960s. And sort of one of the mantras of that time, it was a time when Young people are speaking their minds, you know. Don't trust anybody over 30 years old. And uh, so that was kind of a, a rule of thumb, a principle of guidance. Young people were uh, holding to, don't trust anybody over 30 years old. Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. Why, why would we look to him? Why would we turn to him? Why would we call on people? You need to follow this figure who lived so long ago. Why, why would we do that? Uh, we don't do that with other old teachers. I, I'm not out trying to convert people to Platonism today. Why, why, why call people, invite people, encourage people to follow after Jesus? What puts him into a category of, uh, by himself? Well, we want to think about that a little bit this morning. First thing I want to raise, the question, are, are the are, are the documents of the New Testament historically reliable? Uh, they tell us about Jesus. The Gospels tell us about events in the life of Christ. Can we trust what they say? Do they accurately represent 
what happened in the life of Jesus. Do we have an accurate record of what he said and what he, what he did? And so a significant portion of the New Testament tells the story of Jesus, where he was born, where and when he lived, how he lived, who his companions were, and is that reliable? Do we have an accurate account of the words of Jesus? Well, I'd like to suggest to you that the story of Jesus is firmly set in an historical context. And so as we read through the Gospels, we read about historical figures that we know live not only from reference to them in the Bible, but references to them outside the Bible. And so Jesus lived in this place. All right, we know that that place existed in the first century. He encountered these people. Okay, we know some of those people lived and held office, for example, during that time. Right place, right time, right circumstances. And so the historical record of the Gospels can be corroborated, not only by the New Testament itself, but from other materials outside the Gospel. There are a couple of references outside the New Testament to Jesus. Josephus has a reference to Jesus. Tacitus, the historian, he has a reference to Jesus as well. And so there are not many of those, but there are a few references to Jesus outside the New Testament. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 1, listen to how, how embedded this is or attached to history this statement is. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip the Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was Tetrarch of Abilene. And the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the world of God came to John. And so this, this has reference to John the Baptist, of course, who is the predecessor of Jesus. They were contemporaries. But look at how attached to history that is. Now we have outside the Bible documents that substantiate that these men lived in this place and at this, at this time. You know, one, one of the things that uh, is impressive to me, and it may just be a reflection on my own sort of dullness, is how the New Testament record handles the Herod family. Now, if you've done any research into the Herod family, you know that it's just a, a tangled web of inter-family relationships. There are six Herods mentioned in the New Testament. King Herod the Great, Archelaus, Antipas, Philip, Agrippa I, Agrippa II, and many of their wives are mentioned as well. And again, if I want to know exactly which Herod the Bible is talking about, I've got to get a chart to look at to, to keep it all straight. But you know, the New Testament writers handle that with 100% accuracy every time. And there's, there's no inaccuracy in it. And that's just an example of how the New Testament, the Gospels, they handle the details of history, these, these really intricate details of history, very, very accurately. And so the accuracy of the New Testament really has been confirmed and defended many, many times. In fact, there are very few places in the New Testament where it and extra-biblical material are inconsistent with each other. Now, there might be a few, but, but only a few. And the New Testament is so accurate in these matters, really it should be considered a reliable historical source when there is no material outside the Bible that mentions a particular event. In other words, 
Yes, the New Testament gives an accurate historical record of the things we read about. Not only are the things we've mentioned true, but the geography of the Bible is correct. The topography is correct. The weather is correct. The modes of transportation are correct for that place and that time. The lifestyles that the people live are accurately described. The occupations they held are accurately described. All the little details are accurate from our, uh, our knowledge of that place and time. No wonder, really. Two of the Gospel writers are companions of Jesus and eyewitnesses of His life, Matthew and John. One is a close companion of an eyewitness, Mark. It's a close companion of Peter. And the other one is a very careful researcher. Read the opening verses of the book of Luke, chapter 1. And he says, you know, I've been reading these things that have been written about Jesus and circulating about Jesus. I've been reading them and taking note of them. And I, I thought I would put down in an orderly account the things that Jesus said and did, verse 4, so that you might know the exact truth about the things that you've been taught, the exact truth. And as you read through the book of Luke, you can see he's very careful about his representation of who lived where and when and how and all of those things. Now, some people object to all this by saying that the bias of the writers compromises their accuracy. You see, you see, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all committed disciples of Jesus. And so that's going to skew their report. That's going to distort their report. Their allegiance to Jesus and their faith in Jesus is going to, they're going to put their spin on these things. And, and, and that makes it a little bit unreliable. Well, I, I would suggest the very opposite is true. It's their objective experience with Jesus that led them to faith. Why can't a person who believes write accurate history? What, why, why is that? Why can't a person who is a believer in Jesus write accurately what Jesus said and did? In fact, it's his experience with Jesus, listening to what he said, seeing what he did, that has brought him to faith. In fact, their faith compels them to speak truth and be accurate. It's not that their faith distorts their record. Their faith compels them to be accurate in their record. And so Ephesians chapter 4 is just an interesting comment about that. Paul says in Ephesians 4 in verse 20, You did not learn Christ in this way, the way that he's been describing you. You didn't learn Christ in this way. Well, how did they learn Christ? What did their knowledge of Christ compel them to do? Lay aside falsehood and speak truth with each one with his neighbor. And so their faith requires them, compels them, to tell the truth and be accurate. And that's what we find in the New Testament accounts. And so the historical accuracy of the Gospels have been successfully defended many, many, many times. And in fact, has withstood every test. And so, now that's important to know. That's important to understand. And so when that's challenged, when you're in a classroom and that's challenged, or you're talking with a coworker, and the idea, well, you know, they got a lot of things wrong, then, then you know, no, 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 that challenge is not correct. The New Testament is very accurate. The writers are very careful to report accurately what, what happened. And our faith then rests on this accurate account of what Jesus said 
and what Jesus did. That, that's very important for us to understand and kind of have, have a grasp of. And so let's, let's go and talk about what Jesus said and did. Now I'm drawing that from John chapter 5 when the critics of Jesus and the opponents of Jesus are trying to figure out exactly what to do with Jesus is John chapter 7. I think I said chapter 5 a moment ago, but it's chapter 7. Now what are we, what are we going to do with Jesus? How are we going to deal with Him? How are we going to get rid of Him? Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night and he really makes a common sense observation. It's just, it's just common sense. John 7, verse 51. You know, our law doesn't judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing. Look, look, we, we can't judge a man until we first hear from him. Listen to what he said. We've got to listen to what he says. And we've got to think about what he's doing. And so those two lines of evidence will give us some insight into who Jesus is. What did he say and what did he do? That's, that's common sense, isn't it? You don't judge a man before you know what he says and what he did. And so you need to take some time to find out exactly what that is. Not what other people say he did, but, but you investigate and find out what he did. Or what others report of, you find out exactly what he said. Not just rumor and speculation. All that, of course, is subject to distortion. And so what did Jesus say? What Jesus said. Now, we're not going to have time to look up all these passages, so I'm just going to mention the reference, and, and you write it down, and, and you can look it up later if, if you would like. It would take a long time to survey what Jesus taught. Take a, a long time to do that, but, but He delivered some of the greatest teaching ever presented. And so just read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, and you can spend a a long time, maybe even a lifetime, studying that particular passage. So it would take a long time to accurately reflect everything that Jesus said, but uh, we'll just take note of a few things. Hear what Jesus said about Himself. I'm the light of the world. I am the light of the world. These I am statements in the book of John, there are seven of them. What Jesus claims about Himself, and you know, the, the, the form with which those statements are put together puts the emphasis on the first part. I am. I am the light of the world. So we might read that and say, I am the light of the world. Yeah, that'd be good, but, but really, in, in the way it's constructed, Jesus has said, I am, and no other. I'm the light of the world. I am the bread of life. Come down out of heaven. Moses gave you manna in the wilderness. That was great. But I'm the true bread that has come down out of heaven. You, Eat of me. You, know, you, you take my teaching and you, you digest it and you make that part of your everyday life. That's, that's the way to life. I'm the bread of life. That's John 6 verse 48. John 11 verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. John 10 and verse 11. I am the good shepherd. Remember the 23rd Psalm? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. John 10, verse 9, I am the door. John 15, verse 1, I am the vine. And finally, John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 
Those are some pretty strong claims, aren't they? And so Jesus is going to either be able to back those up and corroborate them, or they're going to fall. We'll, we'll see how that turns out. In Matthew chapter 22, they come to Jesus and they, they try Him. They're testing Him. Now, there's not necessarily anything wrong with testing a teacher. We're told to try the spirits to see if they're from God. Man comes along and he makes claims like this. You want to put him to the test, don't you? I mean, you don't just accept that at face value, but you want to question. You want to put him to the test. But on this occasion, people are doing more than that. They're really trying to trap him and trick him and find something that they can use against him. And so they come to him and say, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And remember what Jesus said, Bring me a coin. Whose image does it bear? Well, it bears Caesar's coin. All right, now you know that belongs to Jesus because it has the image of Caesar on it. And so you give to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar's. But you give to God the things that belong to God. Now what that we know of has the image of God on it? We do. We're made in the image of God, so we belong to God. And so Jesus silences them, <laughs> gives them an answer that they don't know what, gives them, yeah, gives them an answer that they don't know what to do with. And so, and so the next group steps up. We've got a hard question for you. A man married a woman and, she, and, uh, and he died and they, they didn't have any children. So according to the law, she marries his brother and, and he dies and they don't have any children. So she marries another brother and, and he died. And that happens seven times. These people didn't believe in the resurrection, so they posed this question to Jesus. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? She had seven husbands, which, and none of them had any children. If one of them had children, Jesus said, well, she would go with the one who had the children. You know, but, but none of them had any children. Whose wife will she be? And Jesus says, eh, your mistake is you don't understand the Scriptures. <laughs> and we're neither married nor given in marriage and in heaven. We're like the angels, but... But uh, you remember at the place of the burning bush, Jesus says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had long died, and yet I am their God. Which suggests that they've overcome death. And Jesus, uh, God be, continues to be their God. But it silences them. What's the greatest commandment? It's the third challenge. Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. The second one is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus then poses them a question to them. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. And he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. And you know what the rest of that verse says? <laughs> Nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. Well, he handles every challenge. He handles every question. Next. You know, answer is next. <laughs> next. All right, we better stop asking him questions. He's got good answers for all of them. And then Jesus claims to have a special relationship with the Father. Matthew chapter 11, and beginning in verse, uh, let's begin in verse, Jesus' in the midst of a prayer, and says, Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Then, verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Have a special relationship with the Father. Nobody knows the Father but the Son. 
Nobody knows my Father the way I do. And no one knows the Son except the Father. We have a unique, special relationship. I am His Son. He is my Father. And we have a relationship like no other has between the Father and themselves. In John chapter 5, he talks about this relationship a little bit more, beginning in verse 19. Well, let's just pick up it. Yeah, let's just start in verse 19. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it's something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He's given all judgment to the Son, verse 23, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. That's how closely associated they are together. You honor the Son, who is Jesus, you honor the Father. If you don't honor the Son, you're not honoring the Father. And so we have this a special, unique relationship. And then, what did people say about Jesus who heard Jesus speak? What, what did they say about it? After they heard Jesus speak and, and teach, make these claims, claim this special relationship and so forth, what, what did they say? Well, I know in Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at His teaching. He is teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. This is something different about this man. He's teaching us. Now, this is not like the teaching that we got from our scribes. This is different. And it's not simply the presentation and the eloquence of the presentation. There is something substantively different about what he says. No doubt one of the things that was different is the way Jesus introduces his teaching. You've heard that it was said this, I say, this is what I say. I say this. And he's asserting his authority. In John chapter 7, a deputation is sent to seize Jesus and, and they come back empty-handed. In verse 45, the Pharisees say, why, why didn't you bring him? And the officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. There's something different about him. We couldn't bring him in. He's, he's different. And so, we're trying to think, well, why Jesus? Why are we calling people to Jesus? He lived so long ago, surely his teaching is out of touch with 21st century needs. Well, you have to listen to what he says. You have to think about what he teaches. You have to think about the claims he made about himself. You have to think about the special relationship that he claimed to have with the Father. Consider the testimony of those who heard him. What did they say about him? No man ever spoke like this man speaks. There's something different about him. And then Nicodemus encourages us to think about what Jesus did. He, he's gentle, just the way he lived his life. He's gentle and humble compassionate, kind, patient, and generous. Now, his righteous wrath can be stirred at times. For example, he goes into the temple and overturns the money changers' tables and so forth. But it's righteous wrath. It's not, oh, somebody insulted me and I'm going to let them have it. No. These people are turning the house of God into a place of merchandise. Shouldn't be that way. So he cleanses it, cleanses the temple. 
But for the most part, gentle, humble, compassionate, kind. Even when he's being falsely accused, he still maintains that, that kindness and humility and gentleness. Even his detractors are amazed at that. Don't you hear what these people are saying about you? Don't you have anything to say for yourself? Remember Jesus didn't respond in anger, answered some questions, but really didn't put up any kind of fight or resistance in His work. Just maintained that gentle, patient, humble demeanor. Impressive, really impressive to those who saw it. But the works that Jesus did, they testify of Him. That's what John says in John chapter 5. And... Uh, John chapter 5 and verse 36, The testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. Now, I don't know that His works is limited to His miracles, but His miracles would fit into that category. Consider the miracles that Jesus did and what they say about His power and His authority. And again, I'm not going to turn to read all of these, but we'll, note the, we'll cite the references his power over substance when he changed water to wine. Now, wine is not water. Water is not wine. But Jesus turned water to wine. It's the power over substance. He has the power over sickness. People would bring their folk with all manner of diseases, and Jesus would heal all of them, including the lepers. He has power over nature. When there's a storm on the sea, he says, peace, be still, and the sea is calm. He walks on the water. Mark 4, verse 35, John 6, verse 19. He has the power over quantity. And so he can take a few fish and a few loaves, and he can feed thousands of people. And so he has power over the quantity of things. Mark 6, 33, Mark 8, verse, 11, verse 1 and following. He has the power over quality as well. And so he turns water to wine. And you remember the, the, the kind of the master there? He, he, he tastes of the wine that Jesus had made. And he's, he's kind of surprised by it. You know, most people, they serve the best first. <laughs> and then the quality of the wine gets less and less and more inferior as, as things go on. But, but you've done the opposite. You know, you've, you've saved the good for last. Jesus has power over quality. John 2 and verse 10. His power over demon possession. Just with the word, he cast demons out. Mark 1, verses 21, other passages. And he has power over death as well. Three times in the Gospels, Jesus raises the dead, raises Jairus' daughter, raises uh, the widow of Nain's son, and of course, Lazarus. Mark 5, 22, uh, verses 41 through 42, that same passage, Luke 7, 11, and John 11. The enemies of Jesus, when they see the miracles, they don't deny that a miracle has taken place. Now, they, they say He's casting out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus refutes that very easily. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And if I cast out demons by the prince of demons, well, this house is doomed to collapse. And so Jesus, Jesus handles that objection very easily. Jesus did things only God can do. Remember... A man had four friends. He was, he was unable to walk. They brought him to Jesus on a stretcher. Couldn't get into the house where Jesus was because it was so crowded. So they climb up on the roof. They dig through the roof. They let their friend down. He comes down right where Jesus was. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. 
Sins are forgiven. Nobody can forgive sins but God. And Jesus says, so, so that you'll know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Says to the man that couldn't walk, get up. Get up, pick up your bed and walk. What did that, that prove about Jesus? He has the authority to forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. But Jesus forgives sin. He receives worship. Only God is worthy of worship. But when people bow to worship Jesus, He doesn't tell them, now you get up, you're making a mistake. I'm a man like you are, no. Now others did that, but Jesus doesn't do that. He allows people to worship Him. And really when you, you look at the instances where, G, where people bowed to worship Jesus, you'll find that from the time that He's a child, the wise men worship Him. Through the course of His life, His disciples worship Him, Matthew 14, verse 33, and the blind man worships Him in John 9, verse 38. And at His ascension, His disciples worship. From the time He's a child, throughout His life, to the time He goes up into heaven, He receives worship. Only God should receive worship. Well, what did people conclude when they saw these things and heard these things? Now, that, that, we need to consider that as well. People who saw these things firsthand, what did they say? Now, remember, the New Testament gives us an accurate record, an accurate historical account of these kinds of things. Well, what did they say? Well, in John 1, verse 34, John the Baptist said, He's the Son of God. Andrew says, We have found the Messiah. John 1, verse 41. Nathaniel says, He's the Son of God, the King of Israel. John 1, verse 49. Nicodemus says, No one can do the signs that you do except God is with them. John chapter 3, and verse 2. The woman at the well says, I found a man that told me all things that I've ever done. Can this be the Christ? John 4, verse 29. And the Samaritans came out, spent some time with Jesus and said, You're the Savior of the world. John chapter 4 and verse 42. Now not everybody believed in Jesus as the Son of God or the Messiah, but those who spent time with Him with an open mind and considered what He said and, and what He did reached this conclusion. You know, the Scriptures do not avoid relating the faults of people. And I, I want to make that point. The Scriptures don't avoid telling us about the bad things that people did, the mistakes that people made. David is a case in point. Great hero of the Bible, committed adultery with Bathsheba. Terrible thing to do. Peter denies the Lord three times. And so, and so the, the New Testament doesn't avoid that. Here are the heroes, but I want you to know the mistakes they made, the sins they committed. Where are the mistakes that Jesus made? Where are His faults? Even his enemies say, I find no fault in him. Three times after Pilate interrogates Jesus, he comes out and says, I find no fault in him. In order to gain testimony against Jesus, they had to suborn perjury. Couldn't find anything, anything wrong with what Jesus said or what he did or who he claimed to be. And they tried to. There is no sin or mistake in the life of Jesus. And what's the conclusion to this? John 1. In the beginning was the Word, 
The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The evidence is plentiful, isn't it? Jesus is not merely an ordinary human being. He's not merely a highly perceptive human being. He's not merely the founder of a great world religion. Jesus is God in the flesh, God with us. The evidence shows He is the Son of God. Now, why is that important? Well, you see, if we're right, that we're made in the image of God, and we find happiness, and our life has meaning, and we're at peace when we're in fellowship with God. See, we bear the image of God, and our life is in order and what it should be. When we walk with God, and are hand in hand with God, and in fellowship with God, Jesus can tell us exactly how to do that. You see, no one knows the Father like the Son. And no one knows the Son like the Father. And I'll tell you, let me tell you, how you can be in harmony with the Father how you can thrive spiritually, how you can be spiritually, enjoy spiritual well-being here and now and throughout eternity. That fellowship, that peace, that harmony cannot be found outside of Christ. Remember, one of the claims of Christ is, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And what does Jesus teach us about the best way to live? He doesn't say happiness comes through acquiring more wealth or power or fame. Now men say those things. I'm going to be happy if I have more power. I'm going to be happy if I have more wealth. I'm going to be happy if I'm more famous. And they inflict all sorts of horror on others as a result. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus teaches us to follow Him, even to the point of taking up our cross, to learn to serve and sacrifice. Do not become too involved in the affairs of this world. Rather, lay up treasure in heaven and render to God the things that are God's. That's the way. <laughs> That's the way to live, both now and that will bring you life in eternity as well. Trying to figure out how to make sense of the world. <laughs> What's going on in the world around us? Why are all these bad things happening? How, how should we live? Look to Jesus. He is a unique person in this world. God with us. And He will show us the way. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for the opportunity to come together today and to, to worship you. And we pray that the things that we've done today have been pleasing to you. We're thankful, Father, that you sent your Son into the world, that he came and he showed us the way to live. Help us, Father, to follow in his steps every day. Help us to look to him and to listen to him, what he says and what he does, and follow in his footsteps. And so, Father, we're thankful that he came into this world and he led the life that he did and he showed us how to live a life so that we can have fellowship with you the thing that we're meant to do. Father, we're also thankful that He died on the cross for us, that though He was the sinless Son of God, He'd done no crime, He had done no wrong, and yet He went to the cross as if He had, 
so that He might atone for our sin. He bore our sins in His body on the cross. And He made it possible for us to be right with You by being forgiven through His blood. Father, we pray that we will always hold the cross in the forefront of our mind, that we will pattern our lives after it as we take up our own crosses and follow Him. Father, we pray that there may be those who are in the audience today who have never committed themselves to Jesus, that they might hear, this, hear these words, give them careful consideration, that they might see the truth that the Scriptures teach us about Jesus and commit to it. Thank you, Father, for all that you've done for us through Him. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.